Hey, stranger! The Opus is moving out and into a new season as we continue to explore the ongoing legacy of music's most iconic records. I'm your host, Adam Unz, and this season we're celebrating the 45th anniversary of Billy Joel's fifth studio album, The Stranger, a record whose critical and commercial success catapulted the piano man to superstardom. Helping us explore this classic collection are artists like Billy Joel's drummer Liberty DeVito, Regina Spector, Andrew McMahon in the Wilderness, Rozzy, Lissy, The Arkells, Bayside's Anthony Renari, and Ben Folds. Great music shapes lives, shakes rafters, and embeds itself into our culture. So let's find out why only the good die young as we deep dive into The Stranger. The new season is out now and is brought to you by the Consequence Podcast Network and Sony Legacy Recordings. Find us at consequence.net or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to the Spark Parade, a show where I geek out with artists and entertainers about the single cultural work that's most inspired them. I'm Adam Unz, at Spark Parade on all social media. Thanks for joining me. Coming up in a bit, you'll hear my chat with comedian and art critic Christina Catherine Martinez about her enduring love for Giovanni Anselmo's Untitled 1968 or Sculpture That Eats Now... Maybe you're thinking that in the world of career Venn diagrams, comedian and art critic wouldn't necessarily be the first two you'd imagine overlapping, but you'd be wrong. Uh, Christina has a profound understanding of art and art history, but she is also incredibly funny. So basically this chat has everything, laughter and tears. Literally. We run the full emotional gamut here. So... Uh, what's the holdup, right? Let's get this show on the road. Quick Christina facts. Christina Catherine Martinez is a writer, actor, art critic, and comedian living in Los Angeles. This year, she has been named both a comic to watch by Time Out LA and a comedian you should know by Vulture slash New York Magazine. She writes for Art Forum and Art Agenda, amongst other publications, and sometimes for TV, including season five of The Eric Andre Show on Adult Swim. And some quick sculpture that eats fact. Uh, it's one of Giovanni Anselmo's best-known works. It involves the crushing of a lettuce between a large standing block of granite and a smaller stone secured by a wire. If the lettuce is allowed to dry out, the wire will lose tension and the stone will fall. Some have interpreted it as a symbol of the fatal destiny of man crushed between forces greater than him. Mm. Christine and I got into it in much more detail, and uh, I don't know if that's necessarily the conclusion we reached, but um, here we go. Let's dig into it right now. Here comes my chat with Christina Catherine Martinez about Anselmo's Sculpture That Eats. Um, so <laughs> should we talk uh, Giovanni Anselmo? Mm -hmm. um, so this particular piece, uh, Untitled... 1968 do you remember coming across it for the first time do you uh oh yeah. yeah yeah this is you know my encounter with this work is more of like a story 
And it's funny when 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 you first emailed me, I thought a lot about you know I could talk about eighty thousand things that have been formative or inspirational to me, and I thought about a lot of the stuff that I encountered when I was young. But that stuff is formative, and it's kind of you know almost you you can't choose it. You know the the aesthetic landscapes and things that are formative to me. Young for me, it was things like the X Files and Terminator Two and Betty Boop, and and I grew up sort of. A, Sort of actually, I grew up homeschooled and a kind of conservative Christian evangelical home. And my parents are both, uh, my parents are, my mom was born in Mexico. My dad was born here, but my family writ large is all from Mexico. And we kind of grew up with this vague, you know, this idea that culture was important. And my parents were very creative and worked really hard to expose us to art. But I think I also had this incredible feeling of of alienation. And for lack of a better word, you know, there's this growing up in a big suburban megachurch, there was this idea, a very frankly, just bourgeois idea of what like art and culture is and what it does. Mm. And it created this really kind of schizo idea of, you know, if basically anything that you didn't get was nonsense. And anything that was, you know, understandable and kind of sentimental or easily apprehendable was, you know, good or powerful. And I just kind of felt like I never quite fell in line with like, you know, I, I grew up being exposed to like Van Gogh and Mary Cassatt, who are still some of my favorite painters. And then I would see something like weird and I didn't quite get it. And it was alienating to me. And then everyone around me was like, oh, well, that's, you know, that's that's pretentious nonsense. So I'm like, okay, well, then what do I, what am I into, you know? And in 2002, there was um, an Art de Pobre exhibit at the Museum of Contemporary Art in yeah. LA. Mm-hmm. And in 2002, I was in the middle of what would be a very short-lived stint at a private Christian college uh, in the suburbs of Los Angeles. It's just so funny. Like I wanted so badly to kind of have kind of a different life or explore myself and the world sort of artistically and creatively and at the same time I was still drinking the Kool-Aid of of my religious upbringing and feeling very caught between these two like a spiritual and like an artistic impulse and I was at this private Christian college that I would shortly drop out of taking intro to art history 101 and so it's a, me and a bunch of gangly Christian kids from the midwest who are like in Southern California for the first time. And we're barely learning about the Lascaux Caves and the handprints and what a voussoir is and Venus of Willendorf and the teacher, God bless her, no pun intended. I mean, she took us to this Arte Bovra exhibit and I was so like upset because Arte Bovra is this, is this avant-garde movement from the 60s that you know, was dovetailed with all kinds of weird shit that was going on, the dematerialization of the art object and conceptualism and just people really, really trying to sweep away all of the the weight of history, I guess, that had been bearing down on the art object and what we considered fine art. And it was all very, um, and Arte Povera literally translates to poor art, which is sort of refers to the artist's use of like everyday materials and rocks and dirt and junk and crap and I just couldn't deal with it (laughs) it was like 
peak alienation. And I got so upset because I was like, I'm trying to like understand something and I can't. I'm going to cry because I cry every time I think about this culture and this story. <laughs> and it was funny. And I even then like, in the, and I remember being the class walking around and we're looking at like, okay, there's like a pile of dirt on the floor with like a velvet rope around it. And it's like the leap is just too great. And I think the teacher was trying to expose us to something that we were like not ready for. And I remember even like, you know, there's this boy named Christoph that I had a crush on in the class. And he was like, ooh, he's like, am I the only one who just like doesn't get this? And I was like, no, I don't get it either. It's like yeah. pretentious trash. Yeah. But, you know, I rounded the corner of the gallery and uh, saw Giovanni Anselmo's sculpture that eats. And I'll describe it, I guess, for the listeners. It's just too pieces of stone like two stone bricks that are kind of tied together by a piece of string and then wedged between the two bricks is a head of lettuce and so the um the lettuce creates a tension that holds the whole thing together but as the lettuce wilts then it the string loosens and the sculpture will fall apart so it's called um, sculpture that eats because you whoever's in charge of it literally has to replace the head of lettuce like every few days so it stays together. And, you know, this is like a thing from the 60s. And I remember looking at it and thinking about the fact that some poor, you know, art handler assistant, that it's somebody's job in this contemporary <laughs> art gallery to take to buy lettuce every day to feed this thing. Right. And, you know, the importance of, of, of the movement aside in theoretical or conceptual, or even just like in terms of its lineage in art history, which I've later come to appreciate all of that, notwithstanding, I just started laughing so hard. <laughs> I thought that was so funny and so cool and so stupid that this guy figured out some kind of, joke or trick you know and the people what people commonly write about this work that it's about you know it's a representation of nature and it's a commentary right. on mm -hmm. organic materials which is probably all true but god it was just so funny and that was just a huge breakthrough for me which I wouldn't even felt at the time but I've just come back a lot to that moment and think about what that encounter opened up to me in terms of finding my own taste and my own love in, in art and breaking away from like the ideas of what I grew up with of what art is and what it's supposed to look like and what it does. And as I've made my way in the art world, which is obviously full of its contradictions and ethical shortcomings and moral failures and strange capitalist uh, machinations, I do feel like I don't want to sound Woo woo, but yeah, there's something really uh, magical about like even contemporary art's ability to actually like create those kinds of experiences for people. And mm. I and I and I'll, and I'll admit that this is my experience of this work. And maybe other people, your reader, your listeners are going to Google it and they be like, "Oh, it's just some lettuce and some rocks." Right. <laughs> But for me, at that moment in time, it was just really, uh, it's really powerful that this stupid little thing could like just like punch through that membrane of history and my own prejudices. And like, maybe it's formative because that's like the first real aesthetic encounter I had to myself, like mm. on my own. And I bring that with me a lot because I think you know, I have tried out of fear and anxiety and embarrassment, tried to work in a vacuum and it doesn't work, you know, mm -hmm. 
I, I think every artist has to find their the right uh, ratio of solitude versus influence and exploration. And I was definitely way too much in the I'm I'm gonna work. I'm a lone genius, but actually that idea is coming from fear because I'm terrified of of being influenced or being compared. And so I'm going to like do my thing in a vacuum. And Mm -hmm. if it's similar to something or it does something this, I can always plead ignorance because I kept myself ignorant about the history of what I do or what I love. And getting over that has been very, very productive to just like not just my work, but my life in general. And I think about I'm going to mess it up and maybe it's not even a direct quote. You know, Duchamp made that famous comment about how all artists are playing a game of chess with history. And I completely agree with that. He was like so conceptual. I think he eventually abandoned art for chess altogether. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, he, so he could do it in that vacuum. But I, I really I think that's true. And not just in terms of how artists or writers or comedians, you have to um, wrestle with the history of your own medium. I think it goes, I think it can be a more multidimensional game than that in terms of like what I do is kind of a game of chess with my own personal history, the history of art, I hope, like the history of comedy, like this lineage of writing, which at the end of the day, all my work really comes back to. And uh, I still find myself, oh my God, thinking about this stupid fucking sculpture <laughs> sometimes <laughs> and like yeah <laughs> crying about it like I- I'm an art critic you know and, and I mm. admit that like 99% of art is garbage mm. but it's worth it you know to get these types of encounters and it's different for everybody you know right right and i think i mean there's so much uh, a a world of stuff to dig into here but like (laughs) when when you're talking (laughs) and it's great that's great uh when you're talking about conceptual art it's like meaning is regardless of the intention of the artist is so individual uh or that the reception of that art is so individual Mm -hmm. and that there's uh all of these layers in that meaning and so much complexity about what that piece means to conceptual art as a whole, to the art ecosystem as a whole. And when you're talking about, you know, like your family thinking conceptual art is bullshit and it's like, there's one, you know, you have that perception, you have the perception of people who actually like conceptual art, but take it at face value and are just like, this is one block of stone with like a a stone mouth attached to the front of it. It's like a, you know, Oscar the Grouch eating lettuce or whatever. (laughs) Or like you said, digging into some of the concepts that the the movement uh, talked about and that the artist and uh, specifically talked about in terms of the uh, big philosophical things like the impact of consumerism on culture and you know the relationship between the the natural and the human made world and you know big lofty ideas but um I, I love one of the things that I love about conceptual art is that you can just walk up to it and just be like this is so dumb or you know, and and even in that opinion, say this is so dumb and dismiss it or say this is so dumb and I love it or dig into the meaning of it or discover a meaning that's entirely your own that has nothing to do with, you know, the intention of the artist or, uh, you know, what the, the stated objective of the uh, 
the the artwork is. Um, so having something that is, again, at surface level, really simple, the construction of it is quite simple, and having this depth of meaning and emotion spring from <laughs> that is incredible. It's, it's uh, you know, and that that is the best of art to me, is whether it is something like an Impressionist painting where there's it's a little bit easier to discern uh, some kind of story or you know it's an image of something specific um but even then i mean you know well what's funny is i'm thinking about and what is so genius about this work is how even as i come to appreciate the conceptual and historical significance of it it's just gets better and better i mean mm -hmm. that's what that's what conceptualism does at its height it's sort of it's so efficient in like packing so much meaning into such small gestures and like you said there's it's different types of meaning sometimes it can be insanely personal what's funny is that impressionism kind of came sprung out of the same impulse to sort of radically rethink of what we thought art was you know mm -hmm. impressionism didn't want it to didn't want to be representational and so it became impressionistic and the same with arte povera they were just god these crazy italians you know especially after world war ii everyone was just like well we're fucking done we're questioning everything and it was kind of this like it had this modernist idea about like exploring the truth of materials, but I think like um, earlier modernists and like especially like futurists and people like that were kind of like took that idea from where it was still attached to the idea of technology and speed, and they were really trying to take it back to the idea of of nature, like in its purest form. And that's why there was so much pure material kind of being handled there. What do you think about something like this sculpture or like a, a Giannis Kunelis, you know, big fluffy thing or a Pierre Manzoni uh, work? You would think it has nothing to do with an Impressionist painting, but they kind of come from the same impulse. And mm -hmm. which is like, yeah, just still just sort of wrestling with history and like what's come before and like how do you break from it to move forward although yeah. maybe you know during these times i'm sure none of these artists were like i think we need to make a break with history in order to move forward yeah it's just reacting and i didn't get i didn't get that impulse until i went to italy for the first time in 2017 and there is just it's it's oppressive the amount of history that's just everywhere around yeah. you in europe but specifically in venice italy and it kind of put, I mean, because Italians, they had all the wacky 20th century movements. They were they were futurists and they had Orte Povera. And then in the 80s, they did Memphis, which were all like really, really self-conscious breaks with um, really deliberate attempts at like radical new modes of creating. And when I went to Italy for the first time, I thought, oh, well, no wonder they all go nuts every few decades and like start rolling trash around or painting things in wacky colors. Like... <laughs> This would drive me nuts being around this much, having all that history just so present in the visual landscape and in the architecture. And yeah, I mean, and I, I was born and raised in Southern California where we just kind of like raise our, I mean, raise like R-A-Z-E. We just kind of like mow down the visual landscape every 50 years and pretend that there is no uh, right. history. Right. Um, so it, it was just, it's also very interesting thinking about context in Going to Italy for the first time really helped me appreciate the context under which like these artists were working. Mm -hmm. And then also coming back and then the more I traveled, the more I've come to appreciate how unique Los Angeles is in terms of its 
weird context slash lack of context mm-hmm. in that regard. Yeah. And yeah. that the the weight of history across a lot of European cities, <laughs> it's, it's uh, you know, I, I'm uh, a British citizen. I lived in London for a long time. And even, uh-huh. you know, walking around London where there's, there's in the city uh, places where you can walk through these very modern office buildings and then just look to your right. And there's a bit of the Roman wall that surrounded <laughs> the city. Um, and then going to a city like Rome or Paris or wherever, where it's like the architecture, the history is so like ever present. And I think it's like what you were saying that, you know, thinking about being like a young Italian artist and <laughs> thinking to yourself, like, you know, being crushed by the like enormity of uh, the, not just the art history, but, you know. The, the history hi- history. Right. The <laughs> history of, uh, you know, Western civilization that's all sprung from exactly where you live um, and kind of reacting to and against that. It's funny because it makes me wonder if this, this very unproductive impulse I had to sort of shut out influence or history and try to, you know, pretend that I could work in a vacuum has something to do with is a reflection of this larger attitude that maybe uh, Los Angeles has as a really postmodern city of like we don't have history, and you know, there's no, there's no one just saying on a, on a hill acting saying like, hey, there's no history here. But it really, it's a very weird uh, palimpsest of history the way we kind of just build things every thirty or forty years and don't have a big preservative impulse. Um, LA is very unique in that. So it wasn't until, yeah, I started writing about art like in 2011 and then between then and now just traveling all over the world, really just freaking out on the weight of history and how how present it is in most major cities outside of the U.S. I think Eddie Izzard um, in one of his specials, it's not even a joke, it's just an offhand comment. He's something about living in Europe where the history comes from, Mm -hmm. uh, which is true. Yeah. Unfortunately, I mean that's that's a that's a tricky thing to say. I mean it's true because history is written by the victors and for now yeah. western civilization is kind of on top but faltering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also, I guess in some ways this sculpture is like an intersection between that very permanent feeling weight of history and also the kind of more ephemeral notions of art because you have these like permanent elements that are stone and copper wire and yeah uh, you know i don't know if they're using the same sawdust for 60 years but um cabbage or uh lettuce Lettuce. (laughs) that obviously is not the same thing that needs to be replenished all the time so yeah and it just like breaking down the individual elements of the sculpture that again with conceptual art that it's like engaging with it on your own terms uh, whether you understand the history of it or not, there is that element uh, with a lot of fine art where th- there can be this perception that it's like you you have to understand the history of the art. You have to understand the intended meaning to actually get it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that's I don't think that's true. I don't think that's necessary. I think you can uh, when the interpretation or when the, the meaning isn't necessarily overtly clear from looking at a sculpture or any piece of art. One of the most exciting things to me is that you can draw your conclusions and get what you get from it and it doesn't really it it it, like the the intended meaning the history matters but um it's also can be completely separate 
That's what I like about, well, my favorite type of conceptualism. I mean, this, this piece is like such a weird linchpin itself between like so many different intersecting histories and ideas about art and the value mm-hmm. of materials in this weird mix of industrial with the copper wire and sort of natural with the sawdust and then like organic with the lettuce. Mm-hmm. And I mean, meaning is a tricky word because I don't, and, and that's what's so great about contemporary art, and that's what sort of makes it difficult to write about. You know, as a critic, I, in a broad way, am expected to sort of like translate the meaning of a work, but I really, when what I do is, when I'm at the best at what I do, it's sort of just translating an experience because it's hard to, it almost takes away from, I mean, art exists because words fail sometimes. So there's something about, especially this piece that's like, there's something that, that almost gets reduced when we, you have to say, well, this means, or like this, uh, you know, this sculpture that eats is a commentary on the permanent nature of sculpture, but sort of undermining these classical ideas about sculpture by not being a monument, by like incorporating these organic elements that make it a living thing, but it's not a living thing. Actually, that's all. I, I, I buy all that and it's great, but it's just funny. And it still doesn't really substitute for like, how it just how it functions and experiencing mm-hmm. it and appreciating the fact that yeah in terms of like a, a you know a piece of a piece of roman ruin like under a building or like a giant marble sculpture how much more lasting is this modest albeit very high maintenance kind of piece where it's not just languishing somewhere um in a courtyard because well that's a that's a bronze statue or that's a monument we know it can withstand elements and it's actually getting cared for Mm-hmm. in the context of like a contemporary art institution and that wherever it goes, you know, it's uh, someone is caring for it and actually feeding it. And does that say right. more about and is that more of a permanent, like monumental idea that, that this piece actually controls so much human is perpetually controlling so much human interaction around it? Mm-hmm. And it, it's still like, and at the end of the day, it's still just funny. And it's so, it's such a, you know, I, I don't, I, I, it took me well to appreciate the humor of conceptual art because it is, it can be pretty alienating and self-serious, but like at the, and at the end of the day, for all of the, the weird uh, implications that like the sculpture implies, it's still just, it's just really funny to me that it almost functions like this permanent baby or child or little creature that is as long as we agree that it's important we are going to keep taking care of it right i was thinking it's like a a pet yeah (laughs) like you know some something that uh you need to hire someone whose job it is to look after it and and feed it and whatever you know, it's funny. There was that fad in the oh, it was in the seventies. I wonder how, how I wonder how much the fad of the pet rock was influenced by Giovanni Anselmo's sculpture that evening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he, here's here's the uh, you know here's the pernicious nature of like the way um, capitalist commodities like flow from big ideas. The pet rock is just a rock you don't have to do anything with, so it kind mm. of already sucks out the uh, the life giving force that this sculpture has. Right. (laughs) By turning it into a gimmick, I totally don't think there was a bunch of suits at Mattel thinking of how they're going to turn this sculpture (laughs) into a product, but it's very funny. You never know. You never Uh, know. (laughs) Um, How how much of the the humor do you think, and I mean, I guess it definitely varies from artist to artist, but like there are conceptual artists who are 
extremely serious about their work and don't think that their work is very fun, even the tiniest bit funny. That's what can make um, it even funnier. There's, right, there's right. There's nothing funnier than someone who doesn't want, uh, than someone who desperately wants to be taken seriously. It's a very fine line. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And do you, do you know anything about whether Anselmo was aware of... How funny uh, that is? Yeah. Or, I mean, in, in any of his work or in the movement or... Anything. I don't think the movement... I, I think the movement was like, took itself very seriously. Yeah, that's my impression too. And that's sort of why... And Giovanni and someone who's still alive, by the way, mm-hmm. and a lot... Yeah. You know, this is his, um, I, I mean, I mean, Sculpture That Eats is his banger. It's his one hit wonder. But he, you know, he made a lot of uh, of conceptual works that were like, eh. it's hard to explain. Where it's like you, you you kind of you kind of get it, but it's almost like the joke is to the, the concept. I don't want to say joke in a dim- diminishing way, but like what sort of gives uh, this sculpture in particular that to me, the humor is that it's um, that the more you think about like, it's a pretty simple concept. You have to feed it, quote unquote, otherwise it'll fall apart because structurally this lettuce is this lettuce is what holds the thing together. And that's a really, really, formally, that's a really, really simple idea. And what makes it so beautiful is how that, once you start thinking about the ramifications, that idea across different facets, you know, or vectors of what gives this thing meaning, like just in terms of, formally in terms of a piece of like engineering in terms of history the history of art history of italian art and the use of you know organic materials in sculpture that like flowering of different types of meaning is kind of what makes it funny Mm -hmm. and a lot of conceptual art i'm trying to think of a good example you know and conceptual art can also be so tight in its construction like conceptually that there's you get it. It's like, oh, this is a, a projected movie that just says you're watching a movie. And that's, I don't know if anyone's done that. But, <laughs> and, and you get it. But it's so, um, I don't want to say, I don't know if tautological is the right word. It's just so closed. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? That mm-hmm. like, okay, you get it. And the, the, the concept and the work kind of like form this closed loop of meaning. And that's fine. And that can be really, really cool. <laughs> for lack of a better word and I, and I think this happens to me across a lot of conceptual art but there is um you know just let it leaving that little bit of room for like meaning or something to leak out i think is a is definitely an, an attitude and i think it's a difference between like conceptual artists who who is so serious or maybe even just so smart that they kind of like they're in control of every aspect of, of meaning that's going on um, versus, and I think that even happens with Giovanni and Samuel's other work. It's like, it's really beautiful. It's a lot of, um, you know, he's, it's a lot of like minimalist slabs, you know, using the same kind of stone as in this work. And it's super chic and it's very lovely to be in the presence of. Um, but I don't think a lot of his other stuff incorporates like food or many organic elements. It's, it's hard to explain. But I think I'm, I, I hope I'm coming across a little bit. The seriousness versus the humor, it doesn't make one any less smart than the other. But I find mm-hmm. that conceptual work that can, that has the potential for real humor usually entails the potential for like meaning or God forbid interpretation or like in my case with this, the fact that I can't 
talk about this sculpture without crying because of where I met it at the moment in my life. Yeah, like a really, really subjective encounter. I mean, that's that's the fight between uh, a lot of modernist, minimalist sculpture is it just f is in seeking the truth of materials like it fought so hard to make the art object. It's a standalone, you know, self justifying, self identifying thing. <laughs> but like, that's kind of the beautiful thing about it is it's, it's impossible because like, you know, it still can't be perceived. It's still being, it's still, the viewer is still in a space with the object. And as much as we don't want to, like they are bringing themselves to the object. And it's like a, you know, it's like a standoff between like subject, a subjectivity and a really good go at an objective object. And 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 I would say Giovanni, most of Giovanni Ensemble's other work, especially with what he's creating now, maybe just because he needs to churn out chic. I don't want to be insulting, because what a lot of uh, mid-century artists tend to do is get locked into their visual language, and they have to just keep you know churning out permutations of it for collectors so that they can make a living, which is yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah. There's something about yeah. He he uses a lot of like the same sort of forms and materials but lot less lettuce um, <laughs> and that's so there's i mean there's a reason why like this work is so uh iconic and yet we don't know not we don't know but i think the rest of his work is not written about as extensively as this one is yeah yeah uh i feel very satisfied i um I really, really appreciate this. And I, and I never, I was listening to the, um, your interview with Will Young that made me, um, when I was going through my head about like things that are very uh, influential to me, I, I thought that was also such a good conversation and Magritte was is formative to me in his own way. But mm. I really appreciate your insight and your commentary, which is so lovely. Thank you. I feel exactly the same about you. This was like, uh, I, I love talking to people who are really invested in the things that they're talking about. It's like, I haven't really encountered a situation where people are like, you know, the nature of the podcast is that I'm trying to get people to talk about things that they're really excited about so that they have something to say, but it's always more exciting when people really understand the work that they're talking about, not just from their own perspective, but from a broader perspective and that there's like a little bit more to dig into. So this is, this is great. I listened to a few episodes and I was just like, oh, this is great. Like the concept is simple, but it's actually like, you're very, very good at, at doing it. <laughs> thank you. Um, so thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thank you. Thank you for creating this safe space for me to Wow, I really went off. <laughs> Yay, that's what I want. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you again. This was really fun. Ooh, okay, I'm gonna okay. I gotta go. Alright. Take care. Bye. That was great. I really enjoyed talking to Christina. Check out her work. And uh see, I told you it got pretty emosh there at times, but that's the good stuff, right? That's what you're here for. Okay. Uh quick cultural recommendation for the week. Uh, I've been watching Industry on HBO Max. It's a co-production with the BBC, and it's set in London. And it's about a group of young traders working in finance. Now, I should warn you, it's full of unlikable characters. I know people who really dislike it because of that, including my mother. She's going to be so annoyed because she listens to this show religiously and always likes to talk to me about my recommendations, and she doesn't like this one. Sorry, Ma. I'll do better next week. Anyway... 
Industry gets my vote because it makes me nostalgic about living in London and being a dumb 20-something and, you know, being trapped in a toxic work environment. I'm not selling it, am I? It's really good. Promise. Give it a little try if you've worked your way through the uh, whole of Netflix during quarantine, and then uh, let me know what you think. Okay, that's it for this week. If you like the show, please tell other people about it, or at least one person. Word of mouth really works wonders for boosting shows like this, so please help me out and uh, spread the word. All right, now I am really done. Have a lovely week. I have a very special guest next week, so start getting excited. Seriously, it is going to be amazing. But for now, take care of yourself, stay safe, and until next time, bye. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.